right, we're going to go ahead and start with our first speaker, who's one of the co-chairs, Dr. Laura Cheever, who's at HRSA and has been uh, working in this field really since her fellowship um, and uh, also not only works at HRSA but also sees patients at Johns Hopkins Moore Clinic. And she's um, going to give us um, an overview of the implementation of the HIV AIDS strategy. Laura? Thank you very much. Good morning. Um, today I'm going to talk about two slightly different topics, although they're very closely related. One is what we are doing actually to implement the National HIV AIDS Strategy. And second, to talk a little bit about the Affordable Care Act, that's the Health Care Reform Act, and how it's impacting uh, Ryan White grantees in the last year. So first question, have you read the National HIV AIDS Strategy or Implementation Plan? Yes, you've really read it carefully. No. Uh, three, you've glanced through it. And four, what am I talking about? Okay, so um, most of you have not looked at it very carefully, and a few of you don't know what I'm talking about, so I'm going to be reviewing that a little bit today in some detail. Um, has your program taken any different direction or added any activities in response to the strategy? Even if you haven't read it, that you know you're doing things differently because that's what the plan says to do. Yes, significant. No, uh, yes, some minor tweaks. You're not sure or absolutely not. Not done part of what you're doing. Okay, so it uh, looks like um, some of you, about a third of you, have actually done something. Um, some, most of you aren't really sure about it. Finally, uh, do you think that we at the federal level have done anything differently as a result of the strategy? From what you've seen, from impact you've had in your community, from what you've read, same four sets of answers. Okay, good. So um, most of you uh, are not sure or pretty sure that we haven't done anything, so I am here to disabuse you of that opinion, hopefully. Um, so starting with the first slide. So the purpose of the National HIV AIDS Strategy, as most of you are probably aware, is to really develop a roadmap to coordinate our efforts nationally, both at the national level, but also we hope at the local level and clinic level to change how we're dealing with the HIV epidemic. The concept that if we keep doing the same thing the same way, we're going to get the same result. So we need to be doing things differently, and that's what the strategy was helping us to do. In the strategy, they have a vision that the U.S. will become a place where new HIV infections are rare, and when they occur, a person will have unfettered access to high-quality, life-extending care, free of stigma and discrimination, regardless of age, gender, race, sexual orientation, gender identity, and socioeconomic status. So certainly very much in line with what Ryan White is attempting to do. Uh, there are three goals, to reduce new infections, to increase access and improve health outcomes, and reduce health disparities and inequities. And overarching all of these goals um, is a mandate to have better coordinated national response to the epidemic. So in the first goal, we have um, 
three steps. The first step is to intensify HIV prevention efforts in hard-hit communities, meaning we don't just sort of generally do prevention anymore, but we target them specifically to communities that are most impacted by HIV, and that we scale up effective prevention approaches. So we do have some evidence-based approaches to prevention, including uh, what Dr. Rebelding is going to discuss is treatment as prevention, and we need to scale those up rather than continue to do the same old thing we've always done, whether or not we know it's effective. And finally, although we're trying to really intensify our efforts in communities most impacted, we do want to make sure that all Americans are avail understand about HIV and how to prevent it. Um, each set of goals and the three goals have anticipated results, and I'll let you read through those. I just included them so they'd be in your handout for you to look at later what we're trying to accomplish. Um, goal number two, which is really the bread and butter of the Ryan White program, although we obviously have a big uh, role in prevention as well, is to increase access and improve health outcomes. We want to make sure we've got a seamless system to link people once they're tested to quality care. Um, we want to increase uh, the number and diversity of providers. We've had a lot of discussion here about workforce and some of the workforce issues, and that's well recognized in this implementation plan. And to support people with co-occurring conditions and those who have challenging meeting basic needs. And they specifically reference housing, but certainly Ryan White is set up in a way that we are able to provide some of those um, support services, we call them in Ryan White, enabling services or what the community health centers call those things. And uh, the results are there for you to read later. Um, the third goal is to reduce HIV-related health disparities, to reduce mortality in uh, high-risk communities, to adopt community-level approaches to HIV infections, so maybe more structural interventions rather than individual-based uh, interventions, and to reduce stigma and discrimination. And then we've got anticipated results as well. So in terms of the national HIV AIDS strategy, we in HHS have really worked hard to try to make this a game changer for how we work in our individual agencies and how we work together. Um, as part of that, um, there's a new position in HHS called the, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health Infectious Diseases, who is Ron Baldessari. Any of you that know him from his um, CDC days or VA days know that he is a very persistent and persuasive person in terms of bringing us together. He has really been very effective in bringing all of us to the table. Um, CMS, which runs Medicare and Medicaid, is really engaged with us. The Bureau of Primary Healthcare, where the Community Health Center program is really engaged in HIV AIDS for the first time and sees it as an important part of their mission. So he's been highly effective in having him in that role. Um, part of the national HIV AIDS strategy, they acknowledge that we're in a time where we're not going to get a lot of new resources. So it's important for us to be doing things differently with the existing resources we have. And so that's been a lot of our approach, is that we don't have a huge new infusion of cash into Ryan White or into CDC. So we need to be using our existing resources differently to get a different result. I'm going to re uh, review a few, just a few of the different activities we have uh, participated in the last year for you to understand what we're trying to do both at the HHS level as well as at the HRSA level. Um, just some specific examples. This is not by any means an exhaustive list. So first is the HHS 12 Cities Project. This has been the platform on which HHS is trying to build a new way of coordinating services amongst, H amongst CDC, HRSA, SAMHSA, IHS, etc. It's based in these 12 cities, which you uh, can see here are obviously 12 epicenters. And they were chosen because they do represent uh, the 12 uh, 
highest concentrations of HIV in the country in terms of number of AIDS cases. You can see the cases there in descending order. These 12 cities represent 44% of the AIDS epidemic in the United States and um, are, have a high prevalence of ethnic and racial minorities. Um, so in the 12 Cities Project, uh, Dr. Valdeseri has brought us together. We're building on a funding opportunity announcement that CDC had announced in September of 2010 called the Enhancing Comprehensive HIV uh, Prevention Planning, or ECHIP. And this was money from the Affordable Care Act. There's money for prevention, prevention dollars. And this was money that CDC set aside to give to these 12 cities for these 12 cities to look differently at their prevention activities. So rather than continuing to do the same thing in the same way, they are going to look at evidence-based evidence -based, um, prevention activities, many of which they were not doing because they felt they didn't have any new money to do it. So to look at the local level, what their problems were, and to reassess what kind of prevention activities they would do, and to spend a year in planning, and they got specific money to do that. So we built upon that platform that was already out there of increased resources in these health departments um, to try to build on other activities that we could do. Part of it is that we um, looked at all the federal funding we had from all our different agencies that were going into these cities and all the data we had about services that we were providing and where our gaps and services existed, our unmet needs estimates and other things from our Part B grantees, our Part A planning council processes and what they had discovered through their needs assessment and priority setting processes. And we shared those across the health department um, in some of these cities, um, the prevention planning activities were very well integrated into the Ryan White planning activities. In some of these cities, they were two silos. And in some of these cities, there's a lot of politics between the two of them that they haven't really worked well together. So we worked hard to identify what the local barriers were to coordination across our grantees on the prevention side and the treatment side and to try to help bridge those um, risks where they existed. And we also are working to develop some common measures so we can actually evaluate what we have done here. Um, as part of this 12 cities activity, we are asked when, we're, when we have new money or are doing new and innovative programming to specifically think about those 12 cities and our priorities. And we have done that in HRSA. At the HHS level, we have about $50 million every year that the secretary has in discretionary money called the Minority AIDS Initiative Funding that goes directly to the secretary. Um, and this year, $15.5 million of that was set aside to fund six specific new activities in some of the cities. I'm not going to read through the whole list. You can see that HRSA is the lead for two. One for prevention with positives for HIV care and racial and ethnic minorities and to promote retention and re-engagement in care for uh, racial and ethnic minorities. So I can't discuss these in a great detail this time because some of these might end up being, um, will end up being competitive announcements this year that haven't been released yet. But just to say that we are looking to take existing evidence-based processes that have been shown to work and to scale them up in some of those 12 cities. Now we don't have enough money in our two sections to do it in every city, but at least to target those to the cities where it makes most sense um, to have some specific activities in these areas. Um, so within HAB, I'm just going to discuss three of the activities we're doing. First, um, the National HIV AIDS Strategy, uh, step one of goal two was to facilitate linkage to care to create a seamless system. Um, so we have funded for the, for the first time um, states. We gave them up to a million dollars for five years through a competitive spins process to develop innovative um, programming of linking 
um, some of their surveillance and other data to care. So right now in many cities we've got sort of a testing silo and we've got a care silo and we're always trying to develop linkages. This is funding specifically for states to figure out best practices in developing some of those linkages between testing and care and then retaining people in care. Um, and specifically really looking at surveillance and some of those public health approaches to better leverage that linking. Um, in, in HRSA, we have had great success with some of our cross-part collaboratives for you, though, that are in, in states that have had those. We'll, we'll, we work in a state and we ask all of the different parts, A, B, C, D, and F in that state, to come together and work on projects. We're using some of those lessons learned here, but instead of just being Ryan White providers, it's also non-Ryan White providers, some of those providers funded by CDC and others who are important in this. Um, I've got to say that we did not get as many applications as I would have liked, um, uh, but I think this is a great example of how we can try to do things differently. Also, in the implementation plan of the National HIV AIDS uh, strategy, we were asked to consider opportunities to foster residency training in HIV management and care in community health centers. They told us to do that, and we did. Um, this is in, in the realm of increasing providers working specifically on workforce. So um, we've just gotten our grants, our applications in for grant announcements we had about expanding HIV training in graduate medical education, essentially taking primary care residencies and saying, if you have a primary care residency, we want you to specifically expand the capacity or the experience that, that residents would have where they can do longitudinal HIV care in a primary care residency in a community-based setting. We have good evidence that if you train in a community-based setting and you're used to a community-based setting, you're much more likely to stay in a community-based setting. So um, we'll have four awards this year, $125,000 each for three years, to develop curriculum and to develop opportunities for people to expand in those areas. Uh, the third HAB-specific activity I want to discuss is um, around the mandate from the implementation plan for us to increase the number of clinical providers engaged in innovative rural HIV-AIDS care delivery systems, for example, telehealth, and this also goes under increasing providers. So we had a new funding opportunity announcement this year as well, specifically based in this part of the National HIV AIDS strategy, where we're funding uh, three awards of approximately $200,000 per year for three years um, to develop a telehealth training program. And we're actually modeling on this on the ECHO model that Dr. Aurora has developed in New Mexico. There was a recent New England Journal paper, uh, one of his, a paper of his in the New England Journal, that showed that he was able through this kind of telehealth mechanism to develop high-quality um, hepatitis C care in rural New Mexico among primary care providers. So we similarly are trying to translate this into HIV, where we will be developing networks of co-management and consultation between fairly remote providers and an HIV expert in a central location. Um, as I said, this, um, this process has really helped us engage the Bureau of Primary Health Care, which sits in HRSA and where the Community Health Center program is, to really have them prioritize HIV in a different way than they've done in the 11 years that I've been at HRSA. Um, uh, some of that evidence is that they've re released two program assistance letters, which are um, guidance to grantees, one on testing and one on care and treatment and what should happen in community health centers. So that was a big step for them to lay down a marker for their grantees about how this should happen. We've had training of project officers on HIV and treatment guidelines and held a national TA call with Bureau of Primary Health Care grantees on providing HIV services and how certain community health centers with or without Ryan White funding have been able to do this. 
Um, as well, the Bureau of Primary Health Care has engaged the primary care associations, which are their technical assistant arms at the state or regional level, uh, to really get engaged in national HIV AIDS activities, and that's part of their work plan of what they are doing this year. Okay, so switching gears a little bit, I also want to talk to you about um, the Affordable Care Act and provisions that have impacted Ryan White grantees in uh, 2011. Um, the first is in, eight, in July of last year, the pre-existing conditions insurance plans uh, came on board in terms of the Affordable Care Act. In the past, many um, Ryan White grantees, particularly ADAPs, have bought into high-risk pools that existed in states for essentially for people that were uninsurable because of their previous health conditions. The states had a high-risk pool, and they would use their ADAP dollars to buy insurance for people, which would cover all of their health care needs, rather than just paying for their um, medications directly through ADAP. Well, these, uh, those insurance pools have actually decreased significantly over the year for cost reasons and others. So this pre-existing condition insurance plan, which is part of the ACA, is a bridge between now and 2014 to ensure people that are essentially uninsurable because of pre-existing conditions. Um, we have worked hard to try to encourage our ADAP programs uh, to consider these as an option for our ADAP programs that do buy insurance. If it is cost effective, if it costs less for them to pay into this plan for a patient, rather than to pay for medications for a year, um, the a lot, law allows them to buy insurance. And so we've um, heavily promoted this. It has not, we've not had the uptake we wanted to date. They just reduced the premiums for the federal parts of these, these PCIPs. So we're hoping that we'll get some traction on that. Second is um, ADAP now counts towards troop for Medicare Part D. And half of you are looking at the room like, what are you talking about? So um, I think anyone who has um, parents knows that on Medicare Part D that how it works is Medicare Part D pays for a certain proportion of medication costs every year and then people reach this gap area called the donut hole where the person has to pay out of pocket up to $2,500 it changes every year for, for medications and then on top of that once they get into that catastrophic coverage Medicare picks up again. In the past what happens when people would get to that coverage gap ADAP would cover. And since ADAP was paying and they weren't paying out of their own, person wasn't paying out of their own pocket, they never reached that catastrophic level. Now when ADAP pays for that middle part, it's considered out-of-pocket expenses from the perspective of the federal government. Even though, the federal, even though ADAP is paying for it, it's considered the patient is paying for it. And so then after that ADAP pays that $2,500, then on top of that, um, Part D kicks in again. So it's a good cost savings. Um, and that has been available since January of 2011. Um, it takes a tremendous amount of coordination between the ADAP and, and CMS, the Part D provider, to show that they've paid this much and now Part, now part D from uh, Medicare should start paying up again. So it's taken a lot of coordination, but that's happening and it's been a cost savings. Other areas um, that I think are important is the the new medical homes. As you know, medical homes are coming in in a variety of ways at the state and local level. And from my perspective, how I see medical home payments is enhanced reimbursement, so an extra payment per patient per month for an organization to provide that kind of coordinated team-based care that we already provide in Ryan White. Currently, many of you are supporting your multidisciplinary teams through a grant from Ryan White. Grants may or may not be sustainable over time. If you can actually enhance your reimbursement rate by providing those services and demonstrating you have, then it's a much more solid foundation for moving forward. It's part of reimbursement, it's not a grant. 
So um, we think this is going to be important for Ryan White providers moving forward. If the reimbursement rate is sufficient to pay for the types of things we're doing in terms of coordination of care, and we are funding for the first time this year a national cooperative agreement within HAB that provide technical assistance to grantees to make sure they're certified as medical homes. The second area is the expansion of the community health centers. Um, in terms of expanding funding for community health uh, for the health safety net in this country, the new big money is coming to community health centers. So if we are actually going to identify that 20% that don't know they're infected and get the other 20% of people that know they're infected but not in care, if we get that 40% of people actually diagnosed and in care, we need to build capacity. I mean, our Ryan White existing locations are already bursting at the seams. So the community health centers is a great place because they have new money. So um, we, are, we funded a national AETC this year to try to work with community health centers that are not Ryan White grantees to build their capacity to provide HIV care. It's not saying we want to take anything away from existing grantees from academic centers and other places, but in terms of where there are new resources in the healthcare safety net, it's in community health centers. So in ending, since I am on stop, um, I just wanted to say that in terms of the future of Ryan White, what will this mean in 2014? I don't think anybody knows, but certainly if you look at the National HIV AIDS Strategy and the current administration, understand the importance of what Ryan White does. Um, Ryan White fills gaps. In 2014, there will still be gaps. The existing Medicaid program, the people that are currently covered under Medicaid, will probably continue to be covered under very similar, program, similar systems or maybe even more austere systems, and that system has gaps that will continue to exist. Um, just one example, there's a state that allows three prescriptions per month under Medicaid. Ryan White wraps around the rest. It will continue to provide three prescriptions per, per month, and so Ryan White will continue to exist. Oral health services are another area. And finally, um, support services that link lines to care um, are well recognized in the National HIV strategy as something that Ryan White does well and that are going to continue if we want our clients to, to access care and be retained in care. In closing, I would encourage all of you to think about what you should be doing differently in order to get a different result. I think the National HIV AIDS strategy may give you some cover to start not funding some things that you funded traditionally um, and to start funding some new things that we know work based on the evidence. Thank you. So let's take a couple questions and uh, please come to the microphone or um, question cards at this point. Lauren, let me, let me start off and ask, um, to me one of the hardest things to know impact of these new programs, especially with the prevention, and we're going to hear about a lot of that later from Emily, but how do we know in those 12 city programs once you start something that the actual incidence is decreasing? How do you measure that? Right, so you don't know that in a couple of cities they showed the incidence is decreasing. I wonder if they're just doing less testing, right? Yeah. That's what you're asking. So, um, so I think there are a variety of ways people have done that in the past um, through looking at people that are using emergency rooms. Um, but we are actually, so far we've not discussed specifically how to um, measure that as, as part of this overall activity, something that CDC has, has done some modeling in the past and will continue to work on. Okay. I'm Anita Fleener. I'm in Western Kentucky, pretty rural area. And I just want to comment about the Affordable Care Act. Starting from probably Sunday night, listening to the providers through this, everybody's been, there's not been anything negative said. And perhaps because it, where I am in Western Kentucky and I'm surrounded by Republicans and Fox News is on in every room, and I think it's stuck on that channel, 
But everything is negative. I mean, I, I've not, this is a total divergence from everything I've heard about the Affordable Care Act and the future of it and how it, not just with Ryan White, but the Medicaid comments. And so is that really the feeling that it is going to be funded and, and there's not going to be too much of a hitch with the way people transition from uninsured to insured? I'm, I've just been really surprised that there haven't, everybody's been moving forward, Dr. Burke. All the talks are like this is all going to be funded beautifully and I'm, any comment about that? Yes. Yeah, so, um, as, as you know, there are some states, for example, that are are suing about the individual mandate and that sort of thing. So there are things that I think are up in the air, and we don't know how they're going to go. But overall, in terms of how we're functioning, the federal government is as we are moving forward with the implementation of these various aspects. I think there might be some hitches in terms of if people are now covered by Medicaid to make sure that those new Medicaid plans for people over, you know, up to 133 percent of poverty, the new plans are um, still have the, Ryan, the existing Ryan White providers as providers in those plans. So we have a lot to work out, and I think that people are going to have to be nimble and really um, watching what's happening at the local level to make sure that they are part of that system, and we're trying to assist grantees to make sure that they're positioned to continue to take care of their patients. So in the back of the room. Uh, yeah, Laura Armas. Uh, I, I have a couple of questions. Number one, uh, by reading the national strategy and reading all, all the initiatives, particularly with CDC and prevention, it seems to me that uh, women were put a little bit on the side. It's a, a lot of the initiatives are uh, targeted to uh, what is considered the only high-risk group, which is men who have sex with men. But somehow uh, heterosexual transmissions continue to increase, and uh, what are we doing for women, and how is Ryan White going to play that role? And my second question is going to be in regards to, uh, I've been hearing, well, Ryan White is going to continue to exist just for the, for the illegal immigrants. And uh, in states like Texas and Arizona, that anti-immigrant laws are uh, at a high rise in, in those sentiments. How do you perceive this is going to flow at the federal level? Okay, so um, first, in terms of women, you're right, the national HIV AIDS strategy, because about half of all new infections occur among men who have sex with men, and that's actually not been a group that's been well targeted in recent years, I think, in terms of new effective intervention strategies. Um, they were highlighted as a group that is heavily impacted. Um, but I think if you read, so they are specifically highlighted, but I think as you read through the, the, the plan in general and you look at high-risk communities and racial and ethnic minorities, I, there's certainly much that needs to be done with women, and I think it's included in the plan, if not specifically targeted in individual bullets. So I'm not worried that we're going to lose that. In terms of will, this, will, the, will, the, will Ryan White become a program of illegal immigrants, I think if we um, frame it that way, uh, that's politically complicated. Obviously. So um, we are not really, fra we're framing it in terms of all the people that are going to fall through the cracks. If you look at Massachusetts, for example, many different types of people fell through the cracks for different reasons. And certainly, because Ryan White has always traditionally wrapped around, we have lots of wrapping around still to be done on the medical arena, not just in the support service side, based on um, gaps that exist in Medicaid. I just wanted to build on what the young woman from Kentucky said. I think right now, I mean, the whole world is in a state of flux. ACA is the law of the land, and yet it could be considered 
non-constitutional. But I think we all have to work forward. And I would suggest that you all get involved with your state because Medicaid is going to be, regardless, it's going to be a huge part of this. And to help our patients as much as possible, trying to make sure that the Medicaid rules don't get as constricted as some of the states have, this business of three prescriptions or five prescriptions and cutting services, because it's not really going to be insurance if it doesn't take care of the comprehensive needs of our patients. I personally believe that there will still be monies to do the wraparound. I think there has to be. But for all of us as an advocate now, I think getting into your state system and trying to help build that program to make it good as good as possible for our patients. That's a good point. Thank you, Dr. Cheever. Uh, my name is um, Marcelo Venegas. I'm a physician in Brooklyn, New York. Um, one of the things we're, we're, that I, I did not hear is increased funding for substance abuse treatment and uh, mental health treatment, which I think go hand in hand. Um, our our, our uh, community health center and also uh, through our, our providers, we've increased training through buprenorphine um, to, to treat heroin addicts. And I think that, that really um, we're getting patients from Philadelphia, from um, Connecticut, from New Jersey, because there's not enough buprenorphine providers out there. What plans do you have to increase either training or infrastructure for both substance abuse and mental health? Right. So, um, as I said, increased funding I don't think is realistic right now. That's just only in teeny amounts and specific targeted programs. So I think we're really talking about using our current funding differently. The that said, the one place where there is a lot of increased funding is community health centers. And many community health centers actually are good at integrating that substance abuse and mental health services. The community health centers set up with the, the substance abuse programs here, the medical program here, and the, and the mental health programs here. I and mean, they're all sort of interconnected in that horseshoe shape. And so. Um, I would look to see how you can partner with community health centers. In terms of buprenorphine, we did have a SPINS initiative, which really gave us some very valuable lessons learned. And we were trying to get those out and kind of spread what those lessons are and how people can actually stand up a buprenorphine program in their, in their Ryan White facility. We've got a couple minutes left. Let me, I've got multiple questions here, but I think I've organized them. Let's, I'll do kind of quick questions quick and answer. quick answers, Good. and we'll go from there. Role of nurse practitioners as all this expands. Uh, some concern about how the laws are maybe restricting that. Um, I would say that in the medical home, they're specifically talking about physicians, and I think that's uh, problematic language. But I think that um, nurse practitioners and physician's assistants are a key part of what Ryan White does and what, what will be part of a, any sort of medical home, so I don't think that's going to decrease over time. Another question on the same thing. How does, how does a clinic become a medical home, become certified? Okay, so um, they are, if you, if you search um, NCQA or medical home, it will give you a list of what the criteria are for NCQA. There are about two or three different ways of being accredited for a medical home. So you really need to figure out at the state level, so you need to t be talking to your state, or you can use our new TA resource to figure out what you need to become a medical home to get re enhanced reimbursement. If there's like a state pilot or a CMS pilot or whatever, what do they require of you? Figure that out and then do those things. So it varies from place to place, and there are many different paths to becoming a medical home. The Bureau of Primary Health Care uh, has worked with CMS to give higher reimbursement for those centers. Is there a way for HAB to do the same for HIV clinics? Okay, so, uh, yeah, so, so CHCs by law uh, can have an enhanced reimbursement through CMS, and we don't have that by law. 
um, that is something that if you want to pursue needs to have a legislative fix and I not something I can do from where I sit exactly, but certainly if that's something you want to pursue, pursue it. Right. And I think the next one was that if you increase funding for Part C clinics, you'd have more capacity. Why don't you have increased funding? And your answer is going to be you don't give out We money. did not have a cut this year, and I'm, I'm very happy. We did not have a significant cut this year, and I'm very happy about that. It's really Congress that gives them money. They don't sort of create money. Yeah, no, the, yeah the money's given just by Congress. Right. And, right. and it really is many programs were cut significantly this year, and Ryan White was not, and I consider that, um, I consider that an accomplishment. Yeah. And yeah. really speaks to the fact that you guys demonstrate what you do. Yeah, that's good. And... On the same lines, on uh, ADAP waiting lists, I think there's just more frustration, but I, I don't know if there's much that we can do outside of try to be clever with the use of paying for insurance and some of the other flexibilities that, that you talked about. I mean, any insight into where No, that's I, I agree. It's a really tough problem. I think the problem is caused by the fact we are actually identifying new people. They think they've identified 18,000 additional people based on the new testing initiatives we've had, and those people have to go somewhere for care. The economic downturn, the fact that states use, a lot of states use a lot of general revenue that they're no longer going to be using for, for ADAP, so that's all problematic. Right. I think we're out of time. Some great questions. Uh, I know Dr. Cheever will be here for the next uh, day and a half, so please try to find her, and I'm sure she'll be help, uh, happy to answer any questions. So thank you again. You're wonderful.